Okay, this is episode six of a possibility of Apanons. Welcome, welcome. I am Joanna. We're gonna. I. And that's Dylan. Okay. Yep. Yeah, great. Okay, we're actually starting. I don't know. I was like, well, even though we hit record, I was like, oh, we're not really starting somehow. I don't know. Hi, I'm Dylan. Dylan is a dummy. La, 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 la. <laughs> Um, Joanna, how much alcohol have you had None. today? I've had a little bit of Diet Coke. I will not tell a lie. So this is just what she's like. This is just how I be. And this is her good side. This is like when she's nice. That's true. <laughs> it's really sad. I don't know what's sad. Um, I'm in a great mood. I, I know. I know. When you're in a great mood, you're abusive. And yes. when you're you're in, And when you're in a bad mood, you're just a bad friend. When I'm in a bad, when I'm in a bad mood, I don't engage. And when I'm in a good mood, I abuse you. It's perfect. Perfect. That's why Jean-Luc Picard is my best friend. Jean-Luc Picard is your best friend? Because he'll always engage. Oh, boy. And on that <laughs> note, welcome to A Possibility welcome. of Apanans. This is episode six. I'm Joanna, and this is your co-host dylan and today we will be talking about the same old stuff starting with i don't know the mailbox comments did we have any no excellent you guys suck you guys suck <laughs> uh i also put happenings uh i guess that happenings is the overall section so but first well let's just do star trek first since we just talked about star trek Okay, you start with it. Which is like, about the zines? Okay. You do it. Yes, you yes. Do the thing. Okay, so you you remain you remain. I that was me trying to say the word remember. You may remember. Like maybe, you may remember. I think that's where I was trying to go. I know. You rem, you remain that last time. You may remember. Uh, you remain <laughs> ember. You remain ember. That last time. You remember. <laughs> <laughs> you remember this is a fun game this, how this many other ways things... can we combine the word may and remember yeah yeah this is one of those Rainbow. things that only you and i find Rainbow. funny and podcast listeners are gonna be like why yeah but then maybe they'll this. write an email being like why did you do this and we'll have something in the yeah. mailbag next month there we go there we yeah. go so last time we talked about these zines we found at the library they're written by this kid Joshua named Joshua chapman, chapman in night in 92 or around thereabouts airing. What'd you when say? When they were airing, the episodes were airing. When they were when airing. they were airing the episodes. So, um, and so I want to find out more about these zines. Technically, it was Joanna's job to find out, track down jo- Joshua Chapman because she is good at stalking people. I got bored and started searching myself. So, um, at the library, we ha- we have a collection, and uh, the the season two zine was missing. So I was asking, talking to the staff member Nick, who um was responsible for getting that collection. That sounds like a good uh, he, idea. He told me that the collection uh, came from a, a regular patron of our library. Um, she'd gotten into zine making at a young age uh, via her brother, and her brother would travel up to Portland and get a bunch of zines, and he would give her the ones he didn't want. Uh, she eventually did the same thing. So we, we figured out that the source of these zines was Portland, which was a clue. He told me that, that many of the zines, including the ones that we had, were actually reprints. Um, that they were not the original 1992 versions, but were reprints of these scenes. And that he, there had been some suspicions when he was looking it up that the author, Joshua Chapman, might not be a real person. What? Might be or, 
It might be a pen name or a fictional character. So And so I did some research. Uh, he was right. Uh, what I wrote to Joanna when I emailed her this was, this is pretty disappointing but also sort of brilliant. So there's a lot to talk about. Basically, what happened is first the author who was anonymous of these, name of Zachary, came out and actually gave an interview to um, – I think it was the Portland uh, Mercury. So he was anonymous for a while, but now he is not. He was anonymous, anonymous for a while, and these these were just they were just appearing in like zines. But then right? he came out as, as not anonymous. But then he came out about it, um, not with his full name, so he didn't fully reveal himself. But he was just like, "Yep, these are not a real person." And he was talking about how, you know, they are they're authentic in the sense that like they're made using the techniques you would use to make zines at during that time period. And he goes like way out of his way to like you know take you know crappy photos of vhs cassettes you know from the tv and things like that right like really making them making that authenticity but he talks very interesting that i think he thinks that it's an important part of the experience of reading these zines and believing that this is a real person he said when people picked up the zines i wanted people to think holy shit a kid really made these in the 90s there was no wikipedia or whatever back then and then later he gave an interview and he was sort of talking about this weird calculus where he's like, okay, so this may this interview may result in some people realizing that they're not real, but then it will like increase the reach of these zines so the more people read them thinking that they're real. And for him, that was a big part of, of the necessary enjoyment. And I think I, I think the whole thing's really interesting. Now, Joanna, tell me, what, what was your reaction when you learned he wasn't real? I was sad. And why were you sad? Because I like the narrator. It would been cool if he yeah. was real. Mm-hmm. What else? Um, and... Go ahead. Uh, also, you know, it's a really interesting way of creating fiction, but um, it's also a little annoying, right? To have these theoretically documentary pieces of information, probably not even just the Star Trek ones, whatever else you did, yeah. that are actually fiction. So it's very interesting and cool, but it's also like a little obnoxious because you engage with it one way and it turns out to be a different thing. Well, and you know what the first thing it made me think of was? What? Fargo. You gotta have right? a breakfast. Because, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Because <laughs> um, the whole conceit eggs, of, right? of of Fargo, and here I mean the film, um, is that it opens, you know, with this crawl saying this is based on true events that happened in you know, the true. Midwest in 1980. Blah 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 blah. You know, the names have been changed, but everything else about the story is true. Right? It's total bullshit. It's a completely fictional story. Um, no, no real basis in reality. But the Coen Brothers, I mean, they don't they don't tell us why they do things, right? Yeah. So we can speculate. But we, I would assume that the reason they did that is because they're aware that simply telling the audience that up front completely changes the way they engage with the work. And they'll have different reactions and different readings and different emotional experiences. And in fact, somewhat weirdly, if you tell people that things are true, they'll believe things that they would say, oh, that's not plausible if it was fiction, right? Because mm-hmm. we understand that truth is sometimes stranger than fiction. We also understand that it's generally cataloged by number and not author's last name. And the reason for that yeah. is that... Uh, when you catalog things by number, you can make sure all the things in the same subject are together. And she's, this is, she's talking about the Dewey Decimal System. I am. It's important. I mentioned this because I argue, spent a long time arguing with a patron this week about why nonfiction could not be shelved by author. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that's technically not true. It could be shelved by author. Right. You would just lose I attempted stuff. to explain this, and then she got yep. mad at me. And so, anyways, I think we need some, like, counting rehabilitation. I know. Well, that's 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 funny because, you know, in the three years I've been at Central, I've had a lot of people argue with me about a lot of things, but no one has ever complained about the Dewey Decimal System to me. 
And and she was like, I'm never coming here again. And I'm like, good luck at any other public library in the country. I know. You're going to have fun? No, not true. Not true. She can go to the Library of Congress. Yeah, the Library of Congress is even worse, though. Their cataloging system is worse. Okay, yeah, I'm not saying it's not by author's last name, but it's not by number. It's by subject. Yeah, well, the call numbers are ridiculous. But it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay, library nerd talk sidetrack. Let's get back to our not nerdy Star Trek zine discussion. Our not nerdy Star Trek zine yeah. discussion. Because that ain't nerdy the, Unfortunately, these zines are not cataloged. So they will not need to be recataloged upon discovering this because they're just on the shelf. Oh, um, that's, that's it, a solid a, point. B- yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a non-circulating collection that's just all together because it's small. Um. Anyway, and so, yeah, I, I, like Joanna, I had some sort of initial disappointment, but I'm like, you know what? That's actually really cool because, like, it's two different types of cool. Like, it'd be cool if a 12-year-old had made these zines, but, like, it'd be cool in the way that, like, lots of, like, you know, tweens have made zines in the 90s and, you know, whereas this is, like, almost, like, more unique. Like, I don't know of any other case of, like, a modern adult artist going and making not just a fake zine, but, like, a hyper-niche fake zine. And so, I don't know. I and, and they're still, like, they're still brilliant, and they're still fun. And so what he, apparently, another thing I learned is that he then made a collection of all the zines in book form, which not only includes a couple of aliens he missed, but then includes an interview with the adult Joshua Chapman. Because um, that book is, is framed as him just finding these zines and then tracking down Joshua Chapman. Um, wow. I want to read the adult Joshua Chapman. I know, right? So, whether his mom's dead or what. So I reached out to Zachary Auburn, who's the guy who did this. Um, and I actually contacted him via his website and got no response. So then I pinged him on Twitter. And then he got back to me. He's like, I'm so sorry. You're the first person who's ever contacted me via my website. So I, I didn't, didn't quite go to the right place. Um, and I and what I wanted to do was buy the zines. Because even though it's the book, the zines are really well made. Um and he had one, and they're, so cute. and they're really cute. And he had one complete set left, which he was very kindly willing to ship me for cheapo and to throw in a beat up copy of the book in addition. Unrelated, except that sometimes authors and creators still have um, copies of things that aren't on sale anymore. Yeah. Um, Emma wanted a copy of Celtic Realm, which is no longer on sale. So I told her to contact the creator because he might have some extra copies. Yeah. <laughs> the end of the story oh you did okay because you're not going to give her your copy i'm not giving her my yeah, copy it's good because i want it i know but it'll be fun so when when we're in sacramento i'll be like okay are we playing your copy of celtic realm or are we playing my copy of celtic realm no no no. we'll play your copy of celtic realm so i don't have to pull mine out of a box well move update is next isn't it move update is next so um are you coming to sacramento joanna i'm so incredibly coming to sacramento everybody gets stoked okay so i'm actually going to be out of this apartment that i'm currently parked in at the moment on march 16th i'm either going to crash with my aunt or at an airbnb until the 31st when i will fly to sacramento okay and then live there anyway yes okay well i hope that your aunts don't drive you crazy and yeah the real question is because i'm getting half a month's rent back i could throw that at an airbnb and not stay at my aunt's because that's outside money outside the budget could also stay with my aunt, but then I run into the issue of like every time I want to Skype someone or you know, yeah. whatever. Like, what's that going to be like? No, no offense if you're listening to this, Janet. I don't mean anything by it. Yeah. I'm just saying. When when you're in a process of transition and you don't have a job yet, like erring on the side of fiscal responsibility is probably not a bad idea. 
factual. I need to save my monies. And also, if there's one thing I know about your ants is that they will feed you properly. Yes, they will. Yeah. I don't know if you remember. You and probably don't. You probably don't remember this when I I visited Joanna. Uh oh. Do we want to tell this story? Is this no? Think, probably think not. Twice. Probably not. We don't want to tell this story. Uh, probably we're not. not telling but Joanna's ants are great and they're very good hosts. They can be. Okay. Uh, they're excellent hosts. We're so happy. Okay. When I visited them once this years ago, Facebook. I visited them once years ago and they were great hosts. So that's as far as I know. They were great hosts. Yeah. Also, uh, here's uh. a story I will tell: is that Joanna. Um, takes extremely long showers and i don't know what the context was i think we were talking about that and i was like i can take a shower in five minutes and joanna's like no you can't like no one can take a shower in five minutes and we placed a bet i think we probably bet some jp on it honestly and i was like you watch me and i went in that shower and you know stripped down this including dressing and undressing time shower and i'm like haha and then i'm like oh crap they have one of those weird like rain showers where there's like no proper faucet it just like comes from the ceiling so I'm like, oh, this is actually going to make the shower take longer because, like, it's harder to, like, how do I wash my armpits? Like, I'm, like, bending yeah, halfway over. Yeah, but wait, back up. Do You don't condition your hair, do you? No. Do you shampoo it? Uh, I did at that time, I think. Yeah. Back then I did. Okay. So in all fairness, there's, like, a whole step that you just don't do. Well, yeah, but, Joanna, that was something you could have factored into your argument at that time, but you didn't. You were just like, you can't do that. No, 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 no. Well, I'm older and wiser now, and the thing about conditioner One of these two is you things have to sleep in your hair for a little while. Like, it doesn't work if you just rinse it out right away. Okay, yeah, whatever. Um, and and it, shut up. I am wiser. Shut all the way up. I mean, I mean you, you're right. There's a very, <laughs> no, there's a very, wiser. there's a very I, low I bar that you have managed to clear. I unwise I am. You are, you... Do you want to hear something really dark? No, I have to tell you this after the podcast. Okay. Remind me to tell you a very dark humorous story after okay, the podcast. Okay, very dark humorous story after the podcast. Yeah, so you, you're right. You are, as you said, you are wiser and fatter now. Oh my gosh, you're such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we've probably like already like lost one person just from like all the fat jokes you're making in the first episode. Which I'm sure we lost many people, but we attracted the right ones, and that's okay. what matters. Well, okay. anyway, so that was our moving update. I remain excited about Joanna moving here. I'm moved. We- I'm so moved by the moving update, Dylan. Thank you. Ah, uh, that was a good. That was a good joke. Um, <laughs> It took you a minute too. All right. Okay. All right. Um, speaking of next? speaking of losing lis- listeners, this is our segment called "The World Today." Tropes versus truths. And um, usually, and I I threw this in here. Normally, I do not like talking about you know crappy things that happened in in national politics this week. First, because the podcast endeavors to be more interesting than that. Second, because a lot of them are fairly self apparent. Like we can sit here and be like wow the republican party is like totally morally bankrupt but there's i mean oh, it's boy well but no but it's like self-apparent i mean i really mean that in the sense we're like like today to be a per an ethically driven voter who supports the current republican party requires a combination of ignorance and building up all in in sort of uh contortion right like also true of the democratic party Yikes. less so i would considerably less so Okay. Okay. Don't. Uh, we will. We will leave that one well alone. Okay. Okay. Fine. Whatever. Uh, inspired by ruckus around Elon Omar's anti-Semitism quote. Yeah. So basically, for those who missed the this apparently front-page newsworthy story, um, there is a new rep called Ilhan Omar from Michigan, I believe, possibly Minnesota. One of those two. I mean, they're basically the same. We've just lost our listeners from Michigan and or Minnesota. 
Sorry, Michigan and Minnesota, you both start with M-I. Yeah, and like most young reps, she is on Twitter a lot and says various things on Twitter. And one thing she said on Twitter was like, uh, that one of the reasons why Congress is all, is basically all, you know, Israel right or wrong, you know, fuck Palestine, is that is because of money, you know, basically money spent lobbying Congress. And someone was like, well, who do you mean? And she's like, well, APAC, which is the American Israel, American Israel Public Affairs Committee. Uh, which, to quote Wikipedia, Public for, Affairs Committee is a lobbying group that advocates pro-Israel policies to the Congress and Executive Branch of the United States. What it does is it lobbies for Israel. It lobbies for Israel, States and so and uh, the way it lo- you one lobbies uh, in the world is that you spend money to employ yeah. lobbyists who then go and lobby. Right, and they and they usually give people money in exchange for for their campaigns in exchange for some amount of dedication to issues. Yes. APAC's a little bit different in that they don't directly give money to campaigns. What they spend their money on is instead, you know, throwing parties that senators go to and where they hear about things and funding trips to Israel and basically all the soft power stuff, short of actually mm-hmm. donating. Uh, but they're still a lobbying group. I mean, self-identified. Um, yeah. And so then everyone – anyway, so this came out, and then people both on the right and the left, like everyone got together and in an inspiring moment of bipartisan unity agreed that her – tweet was disgustingly anti-semitic and you know needed to be burned down if she needed to apologize not everyone i know several people who disagree not everyone not everyone in terms of human beings i'm talking about in washington right so like everybody in the political establishment right was like so right right so in a world in a world in which mitch mcconnell and nancy pelosi never agree on anything right they're both like oh this is so terrible and it was super weird because on one hand what they were responding to is that um, as I'm sure Joanna could tell you lots about, there is a, you know, many centuries old sort of racist trope about, you know, Jews controlling the monetary supply and using their, you know, money to make evil things happen. Um, and so the argument was that she was invoking that trope, which is, you know, at some level she was. Um, but she was also saying something that was factually true and that nobody would argue was not factually, nobody who wasn't, you know, no one would sincerely in good faith argue wasn't true. And so it was very weird because you had something that was both true and a racist trope at the same time. And so there's some sort of tension there. And almost everybody said, well, it's wrong because it's a trope. And the fact that it was a true statement was not considered relevant. And to me, I mean, I just really respond to that as something that was actually not politics as normal and maybe like, a sign of the times or something what do, what do you what do you have to say joanna um i think that it's an age situation or an establishment situation the two things are linked right there's like this establishment politics that's very closely associated with like boomers mm-hmm. and then there's like millennial people on the left and the right um, who are much less worried about the trope of of anti-Israel being anti-Semitic. Because on the left, it's out of a concern for Palestinian rights. Um, and on the right, it's a concern of nationalism, right? right? That, like, America should be interested in America. Well, well, and, well and also specifically on the right, um, evangelical Christians have sort of tied their um, carts to Israel. And so there's a sense that if you if you oppose Israel, you ultimately piss off your evangelical Christian base. Yeah, although I think we have overblown the amount that the evangelical Christian base matters in recent yeah. years. I mean, I mean, in a numbers game. Sure, sure, like, sure. But I, I'm talking not like a quality. Yeah, I'm talking perception, right? 
all that matters is what right. the congressional reps perceive to be true to their interests. Well, and then it's like, you know, you get into questions of like, uh, when it comes to this notion of like trope versus truth, right? Um, like what's actually happening versus how we understand it in contextually. Like mm-hmm. one of the things that comes up is that most of the time it's very important to understand something contextually. But some of the time, just because you understand it contextually in no other way, it gets away with being totally ridiculous, right? right? So, like, this is an example of that, where it's like, we're all so, like, Washington, right? And, like, this whole generation of politicians is so, like, conditioned to hear that argument. Yeah. You know, be like, that's so anti-Semitic, right? right? Um, But it's because of that, that's how it's received. Whereas... Probably it's also true that somebody in another country, right? Someone who didn't even have that context, it wouldn't even be a question for them. Right. They'd be like, what the hell is happening? Right. No, and that was, I remember that's what what I, that's how I felt when I read it. I'm like, yes, that's lobby, a a lobbyist group is a lobby. Like it was almost what she said was almost tautological, right? Yeah. There's no, you can't disagree with it because it's, it states its own premise. And then she apologized for it. And then she was, yeah, which was pretty clearly like, you know, the Pelosi and the powers that be were like, if you don't apologize for this, we will string you up, you know? Right. And oh boy, yeah. I mean, I guess part and part of this is I'm coming at this a little bit as a, like a librarian, right? Is like we're like the last defenders of facts, you know? Like facts right. matters. No, it's not a post-truth age. There are things that are actually objectively true, you know? Blah 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 blah. But yeah, I I, I think I, we see this a lot in sort of identity politics discussions in general. That there are all these sort of rules about how language can operate and function and interact with different things. And the rules of language supersede the rules of lived experience, you know. Yeah. So, um, it, one thing that actually made me think of, you know, the the book Mouse, the Art Spiegelman book. Yeah. So, in which his father is a prominent character, and his father, um, turns out embodies a lot of Jewish stereotypes, uh, of Jewish men, and so Art Spiegelman is worried, like, oh God, like I'm writing this true memoir of my father, but people are gonna think I'm a total anti-Semite because I'm creating this Jewish caricature, even though he's just that's just what he as an individual is like um of course and he dodges this particular bullet by writing that fretting directly into his own work because he's a character in his own work and he get, can get sort of get away with it but you mm-hmm. know it's like what if he hadn't um right right no it's real and i think another thing that you get into this comes up sometimes and it's it's actually really awkward um but like uh there are things there are there are uh, i mean bigotry is always bigotry and there are also like things that are true about cultures off of which stereotypes are based. Right. So there, it is like, you know, Jews and bagels, that's a thing, right? Like that's a stereotype. I'm choosing a, yeah. a friendly a, a one, pretty innocuous right? one. But it's, it's true, right? Oh yeah. You find it obnoxious because you're a No, innocuous, but, innocuous, I said. But you do find it obnoxious, don't you? Wait, what, which one do I find? Jews and bagels? Yes. Oh, well, because we the had... Jews are experts on. Bagels, oh yes, yeah. Right? We, no, I, what I found obnoxious. Joanna's referencing conversation years ago in which Joanna and a yeah, Jewish friend, I just remember and a Jewish friend of hers told me that I actually didn't know what a good bagel was because I wasn't Jewish, and, there you and go. I was like, so this Rah! is an example, right? Yeah. And it's like it's based on a stereotype about Jews and bagels, and it might not like I was talking to my mom and she was saying to me that all of the good bagels in Israel come from New York. So it's not like there are plenty of Ashkenazi Jews in Israel, but somehow the best bagels are coming from New York, which suggests they have more to do with New York yeah. and less to do with Judaism. Nonetheless, the stereotype exists. And um, it is true that if you go to like a Jewish luncheon or to like a bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, there are definitely going to be bagels. Yeah. Like that's a situation, right? Like 
it's true. So you get into like questions of the difference between, okay, here is something that's a cultural marker and here is a way to analyze a character, right? And that's the difference, right? So like, I can be like, yes, Jewish culture has a tendency towards, or it's common for Jews to bleep, right? No. But that that isn't a value judgment. It isn't me saying this character, you know, like the, the bad character or whatever. And that's where you get into the difference between trope is truth and like, and like bigotry. Yeah, right? well, and part like, of it is that people want to use shorthand for everything. So we want to, you know, because we're doing things in tweets and we want to abbreviate everything, we want to combine, you know, the arguments and the tropes and the facts all into one little package. And that makes it very yeah. hard to separate them out or to have these sort of distinctions. Yeah. Another thing that this came up, uh, this is a conversation from like six months ago, but I feel obliged to mention it in the context of the podcast. Whereas I, at one point I said something about a, a identity politics and, and my friend was like, oh, isn't identity politics just like a dog whistle for like, you know, the right? Um, mm -hmm. And the answer was like, yes and no. Like it often is a dog whistle for the right. Like there's all these people, you know, and it's very silly because it, it, it imagines that identity politics are a um, characteristic of the left, but not of other politics, which is completely wrong. It's a function of all politics. It just manifests differently in different places. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it kind of get back to the same thing. The fact that there's a bunch of people who run around kind of barfing up identity politics um, does not mean that that's not a useful framework to talk about politics. Likewise, the fact that a lot of people run around and say gross, grossly accuse others of virtue signaling does not mean that virtue signaling is not a thing that exists. You know, mm -hmm. but I, I, it's one of these things where, I mean, we talk about this, you know, it's almost like the left you know, on the right, they talk, they like, it's like they've learned this word identity politics and they want to use it everywhere, even if they don't really know what it means. In the same way that the left, a lot of people on the left have learned the word neoliberal, neoliberalism and want to go around and call everything neoliberal, even if many of them could not actually define that word if you ask them what it meant. <laughs> yeah. Um, this, this came up recently. I actually on um, the Hampshire College. Oh, we probably should talk about that this podcast, I almost wonder. Oh my God. We probably should, should probably talk should. about Hampshire. Hampshire. So uh, I have had, I feel like the last month of my life has been one of the more eventful and dramatic of my life. Literally, when Joanna was visiting, uh, a thing came out about our college. About Hampshire. Our, sorry, Hampshire, which is the college we both went to, exploring. That we both went to. I graduated in 2009. I graduated in 2011. It was very exciting. It was very exciting. Um exploring uh merger possibilities are uh, looking with for universities yeah with universities and everyone was like wait what and then it came out that um they had a big shortfall in their entering class and they're primarily tuition funded so they're basically facing an existential crisis um regardless of what happens going forward they will have to at least in the short term uh cut a good portion of their staff and faculty um and kind of be on a skeleton crew and then either they'll figure out some sort of partnership and figure out a way to continue or they won't in the college will close. Um, and it was, you know, sort of dramatic, both because it's a, I, don't, I, mean, I can't speak for Joanna, it's a place I care a lot about. Um, but then also because, uh, you know, then I kind of poked my head in the alumni group, which I'd left years ago because people were jerks. And uh, not unsurprisingly, a lot of people were still jerks. And it was the school that I, I think really highly of their educational model. And I think 
that you know can produce people who are capable of great critical thought and are brilliant in all these ways and then i thought of people who had managed to graduate from the same school and were not displaying those thought skills mm-hmm. right i think in any in any situation you're definitely going to have a like a some people who either um due to lack of effort or due to lack of navigational skills will graduate without that without whatever the intended philosophy was you know educational philosophy um hampshire's a weird school uh with a weird design but it is not the only one like it in the country um and so one of the things that i think comes up a lot and i think a lot of people don't necessarily realize this i argued this to ben siegel hi ben not that long ago on the facebook alumni group but the one of the things that comes up again and again and again is this notion of shared governance, right? Oh committees that are all I'm saying is this notion, right? This these diverse committees, and by diverse I don't mean racially diverse. I mean students and faculty and like you know like staff and alumni, yeah. you know everybody, all making decisions about Hampshire together. That idea of governance is rooted in progressive notions of social justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the thing that when you talk about shared governance or like you talk about Hampshire needing to reach out to the broader community because the community is this unique thing, you're talking about Hampshire's commitment to social justice. But when you talk about, you know, what Hampshire College's purpose is, like what is it there for, right? It's a liberal arts college. It's there to award people degrees, Mm -hmm. right? And to give them competent educations. Although the two things both matter a lot, and although they have a relationship, right? They are not the same thing. And that comes up again and again and again with the trustees, right? Like, are the trustees evil because the thing that they're focusing on- Is the college. is Is the purpose of the college as it relates to what colleges do mm-hmm. versus as it relates to what Hampshire specifically does. Yeah. And there's been a uh, lot of people know. who have basically come out and said, it would be better if we had this process that is fully in keeping with our values and then shut down than if we had a more traditional neoliberal, I saw that word thrown around a few times, oh, process um, that results in the in the college continuing. You know, And one of the things that I think comes up is like how many people – how many of the people who are sitting around um, bemoaning the trustees of the college know how much the trustees gave the college to keep it running to this moment? Because uh, some some that, of, some of them do know, but then they never they're like, well, screw those rich people; they should give us all their money anyway. I mean, there's just been a lot of gross like, stuff because yeah, it's very like it's so weird to me that there are people who think that the trustees are not invested in Hampshire. They are both literally, financially, and obviously emotionally invested. Like, you don't dedicate that kind of time to committee work to be spiteful and evil. Yeah, someone literally, who's a, like, who is a former member of that of that committee, you know, just posted a big thing saying that, like, you can not agree with what they're doing, you can have some issues with their process and whatever, but, like, I did this for many years. I spent 50% of my vacation time from work doing this unpaid labor for the college. There is zero benefit to yourself. Right. The right. only reason you no do sense. this is because you 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 care so deeply. Right. If you want it to be evil, there are plenty of better ways um, yeah. and more efficient ways to do it. Right. It just makes no sense across the board. Yeah. But um And so uh, just seeing but, that from my from my 
peers, you know, the, the fellow students are like in like week three of occupying the president's office because, and I was making this argument that like there are certain things that boycotts accomplish. There are certain things that protests and occupations accomplish, but they yeah. the, the method has to be fit to purpose. And if the issue is a monetary shortfall, you cannot get money by occupying. Right? It does not cause the money to generate into the coffers. Yeah, I will say I'm more forgiving of college students because they're they're college, college students. students. You know, I, and I right? agree. Like, I agree that that's true. Though, that that said, you know, if you're a senior, if you're a senior at Hampshire and you still haven't figured out like some of this how to make effective change stuff, I'm feel like you're you're one of those people who maybe has not really gotten because because Hampshire is like it has this this poster image is like a hippy dippy place, but it's actually like very practical hampshire's like a very much like what are the what can we do in four years to best equip you with navigating a changing and complex world right and i i think that also there's something kind of personal for students right so like our argument for hampshire continuing is not that we currently live there right this gets to your your facebook your facebook photo right tell us talk tell us about that yeah oh i have to actually pull it up um but like that's to me that's like a very powerful argument yeah. that you just don't see on the alumni page a lot because um you know we're alumni but right because we're, we're, we're not so, residents so the the banner on my Facebook page right now is Hampshire's library which is the sort of the center of campus mm-hmm. it's where everything goes on and there's a banner right in front of the entrance that says this is our home these are our lives mm-hmm. um, and to me that is like. You know, that's not philosophy, that's not rhetoric, that's not, like, what is Hampshire doing in the world. That's, right. like, this is my community, this is where I live, these are where my friends are, I have teachers I care about right. who I know personally. You know, like, there's staff I know and talk to every day, and I really hate the idea that this place where I live and yeah. is my home could get, you know, is going to be downsized for sure. Like, one thing that is definitely going to happen across the board, everybody agrees, is that there's going to be a serious Because you literally don't have the money to pay people. Right. Yeah. Uh, quote unquote restructuring. And so like, you know, that like that, you know, I really feel for them. Right. Of course. Like it's, and it, the thing is, it is true. And I acknowledge that like, you know, there are people in the world in worse situations. But at the same time, this is a situation where we one of the things we recognize and value about a college education is that there are a lot of people in a similar age range going through something together right going through a process together that is transformative um and so to be told in the middle of all of this hey your college is imploding you know underneath you and these connections that you've made and this these things that are you are currently living in in your home you're forced out of your comfort zone at maybe like right now the most important things right like yeah that's that's a big deal you know and that that's a very practical in your face deal um and so do i think there could be another hampshire you know with us uh commitment to social justice and written evaluations instead of grades and design your own majors yeah is this group of kids right yeah and like what they're going through that's not a reproducible condition yeah. right like they themselves have something to say that nobody else can address and one thing that is worth noting i i when people ask me about Hampshire, I bring this up every single time, is that mm-hmm. in the United States, you know, we have a ton of colleges, right? Education, which is tons of people who get higher educations. Um, and you, and in most things of life, like, you know, in the world of cars, right? Like all cars, you know, they all have four wheels and they go forward. But otherwise, there's very different. You can get a very big car. You can get a very small car. You can get a blue yeah. car. You can get a white car. You can get a car that's all powered by electricity or you can get a Hummer, right? But for some reason in education, 99% of schools are the same. 
in, in their core educational model and structure. You know, it's like the entire world was driving Camrys, and then Hampshire is, you know, is a smart car or something. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's why these places are so valuable. And it shouldn't be like that. It should be that at bare minimum, 10% of, of education is alternative education, right? Because people are different. Different people have different educational needs. But we as a society have just embraced this one-size-fits-all educational model, and specifically one-size-fits-all for all ages. That The educational model in first grade for six-year-olds is the same educational model you use for people who are 21. You know, you make it more mm-hmm. complex as you go, you know, they have to write longer papers. But the way you grade them is the same. The way classes are structured is the same. You know, the, the way assignments are work and tests and everything, it's all the same. Mm-hmm. And so for me, when, when, you know, when you have something like Hampshire die, it's not just, oh, you know, crap, there's a college that's dying. It's like it's an endangered species that is, you know, losing, you know, it's like there's like 10 tigers left in the wild and one of them is dying. Well, and I do think that um, one thing that's true is that it's also uh, sort of an omen, right, for what non-practical education, what is happening to education that is not immediately practical. So, And by practical, um, you mean like trade schools? Yes, that's correct. I mean, um, ones that are specifically intended to give you get you a specific job. So like that could be like majoring in business or majoring in economics it doesn't necessarily have to be a trade, but it's something where it's like, okay, this is the, this is the job that I'm going to apply for when I get out of school. It's a pipeline. Degree. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And that there's a lot of like, um, there isn't a lot of love for basically, this is a very stereotypical thing to say, but there isn't a lot of love for the liberal arts education anymore. Yeah. Um, just as a thing. Right. And we used to, love it so much that we gave it to everybody in high school. And that's why like not everybody went to college or way fewer people went to college than do now is because high school and like in some parts of the world, like if you go to Brazil, um, you do graduate high school in Brazil with what is often a bachelor's level amount of knowledge in like science and math and English and stuff. So like, you know, but in in this country, we're just so oriented towards, wage labor and towards the, mm-hmm. the economy sports is that we've come to view education as as the only purpose of which is to make you a better worker. Yeah. yeah, right. Which is, you could argue that the purpose of education in society is to make you a good citizen or even a productive citizen, but there are a lot of ways to do that that, that are that making not, money. Right. I would argue that, yeah. you know, I mean, I take a lot of pride in my job, but it, my my the ways in which I'm a productive citizen are in no way limited to that library building. Right, exactly. Um, and for instance, know. I make an amazing podcast, which is significantly improving the lot of humanity outside of work. Oh boy, oh boy. Okay. Anyways, we should move on because this podcast cannot be three million years long. Yeah, but our last podcast was an hour, so you know we can balance it out. Um, yeah, but that I thought no, I think that was a conversation we had. Again, it's been a month, so you know if this is a little bit longer than normal, we have uh, more material yeah. than normal. Uh, so next up, uh, what's up next, Joanna? back about something, I'm sure. Uh, Joanna reports back on slow burn. Oh, boy. Okay. So, um, has so the, the fire has reached your ankles? So who knows what slow burn is? I do. Anybody? anybody? Um, slow, do you want me to say it or do you want to say it? You should it? say it. Slow burn is a podcast put out by Slate and hosted by Leon Nafak, who I went to high school with. Um, Which I didn't know when I signed this to her. Which he did not know when he signed this to me, and I did not know until I looked it up. 
Um, and it has two seasons, but I only listened to um, part of the first season, which is on the Watergate scandal. Um, uh, the second season is on Bill Clinton's impeachment. What's that word? Impeachment. I keep wanting to say assassination, but that's not the right word. No. Impeachment. Okay, so, but that's the second season, which I did not listen to. The first season, which is about the Watergate scandal, um, it's really interesting because the, so, um, NAFAC makes a lot of, well, his podcast makes a lot of references to the, I don't know how to say this guy's name, Mueller, the Mueller yes, investigation. Mueller. Mueller, Mueller investigation. Mm-hmm. I've only ever read that word. Yeah. Um, Mueller, just, just like you're Mueller uh, something. Mueller, 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 Mueller investigation. But like, um, it's not like the point of the podcast is to be like, these two things are exactly alike. There's just these parallels that sort of develop. Um, and, uh, one of the things that I really liked about it is that it went into detail about things that are not commonly known. And so it's, you know, I guess that's one of the reasons it's called slow burn. Mm-hmm. Um, but for example, the first episode is about someone by the name of Martha, I want to say. Yeah. Martha, Mar- Martha, Martha Mitchell. Yes. Martha Mitchell. And she, um, fails at exposing the Watergate scandal and has her life ruined. Um, and I don't want to say too many spoilers about it. That's, you know, that's something that's given to you in the text when you like go to listen to it, but that's not anything that anybody knows about the scandal. Well, most people know because, um, because we always want to tell the story of the, the heroes who unmasked the great conspiracy, right? right. But for every hero, there's a hundred people who try and are taken down because it's you versus the president, you know? Exactly. Um, and I think that one of the things that you like, one of the best reasons to listen to this is that um, it's hard these days to find a conversation uh, about something serious that isn't fundamentally polemic, right? That isn't trying to thrust an argument in your face. Um, And slow burn is just about learning what happened. It's a, it's like a, it's almost like a human interest story that's also political, mm-hmm. you know, as about a political event. And that makes it a very compelling. Um, and it, you don't feel like either you're expected to feel a certain way or think a certain way about it. Um, and that's, it's rare in, in media generally today, but also specifically in media about anything political. Right. Um, and, and the title itself, as you say, slow burn is like, it, that's antithetical to how we consume media today. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think you're going to listen to the rest of the season? I um am definitely going to listen to the rest of the season. Am I going to do it before I get on an airplane to no. Sacramento? That you should Probably save it. Not. That's a great thing to listen yeah. to. Yeah. It's probably what's going to happen. Um, did you have any other insights? Did it make you reflect anything about our current situation? I mean, as you say, the, the podcast does a good job not you know pushing that too hard, but. Um, I think that one thing that I'm wary of when I listen to it, and this is one of the reasons why I'm glad they didn't push it too hard, is that I'm still waiting for, you know, proof positive that the Trump campaign did something that is definitely shadier and more traitorous than any other campaign has ever done, right? Like, I personally 
am not sure how far the Russia thing goes. Now, I'm not saying I like Trump. I'm not saying that at all. So for me, one of the nice things about the parallels between the two, you know, when we talk about Watergate now and what it is, okay, so it was definitely a scandal. It was definitely very bad, right? Um, but it wasn't, I know this is kind of bizarre, but it wasn't treason, right? Like we weren't, I mean, yes, it was treason. It wasn't foreign, like it wasn't it was foreign like, interference. Oh, yeah, yeah. Foreign, yes, that's what I mean. It wasn't foreign interference. So it didn't, like, but it, one it, of it the was, things it was that criminal. I find, right, it was criminal. But one of the things that I find very upsetting about Democrats who are like, oh my God, Russia, 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 is that in their perfect world, the Russians successfully subverted our politics, right? And so I really like the way these parallels are drawn um, because it talks about decision decision making and how things happen in a much less dramatic um, and sort of like spy and fueled, which I think is sort of, to me, it's like ultimately very um, destructive, right? It's a very destructive narrative. Like it's probably not good. Like it might be true, and if so, we should find out. But it's probably not a good thing or something that we should hope happened that, you know, that Russia successfully meddled in our politics. Oh, of so course. Uh, w- one thing I was asking about in terms of parallels. Um, sorry. Treason. Oh. Yeah, sorry. Uh, well, I was just like, I, uh, I was just thinking about like, yeah. So, right. Like, so there's, there's, it turns out that there's kinds of treason that Joanna Toba Price has an easier time stomaching <laughs> and domestic treason is one of them. And like, I'm not saying it's good. It's definitely terrible, but it's preferable to Russia, yeah. contr- you know, like having that much control over U.S. politics. One thing I, but one thing when I say in parallel is that I, I hear what you're saying about us not actually really knowing that much yet in terms of, of Trump. But where you are on the podcast, that's also true for Nixon, right? Where you are, there's no smoking gun yet. We don't know the Watergate yeah. break has happened. So one thing that I think is interesting, the, really the focus of the podcast is not what do you do when you know everything, but what do you do when you don't know, yeah. right? What do you entertain? And one thing that you see is that while there is partnership and there is you know, some knuckle-dragging, there's a point at which you know, initially this is just dismissed because obviously the president would not commit criminal actions, right? The office is sort of considered above that. Um, yeah. And one thing that's, that's different post-Watergate is that we no longer have that illusion. Um, and But there's sort of a new – anyways, but, yeah. So it's sort of a new thing to be like – it's the next step maybe, you yeah. know, to be like, oh, it's another country. Yeah, you know, yeah. like I find that like, yeah. But, 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 but even that, know, like, I mean, with Trump, he there's about 17 different lawsuits involving him right now, right? The Russia angle is one of – one of many it's just as you say it's the most sensational um but yeah. but well, what and is, it's the one that it's getting really pushed yeah, like pop in a popular yes, media yes. By which people, itself is interesting because as you know like the russia thing could turn out to be completely nothing and trump knew nothing and had nothing to do with it and he still probably did a number of criminal things just in things having to do with real estate or campaign financing or just other which is way more likely right um, or other things you know, it's, um but, it's way but more my likely point... and it's way more familiar yeah i mean i i, I don't want to sound crass and cynical yeah. but it's way more american yeah <laughs> you know, right just but my point is that um there's definitely a point in terms of congress in in this narrative where they say oh there is ev- we don't know what's happening but there's there's enough evidence that this is worth investigating that we need to seriously pursue this as a body, right? Yeah. Um, whereas what we experience currently in Congress is that if you have an R after your name, 
you oppose any and all investigation into anything, including things that aren't like one of the questions is did Russia interfere in the in the election? There's a and there's a there's a pretty the answers look like a pretty high yes, which is not the same thing to say that it was coordinated, right? That that it seems like the most likely outcome from what we currently know is that Russia interfered in the election but did not coordinate with the Trump campaign in any way. He was the beneficiary, but he didn't, you know, he didn't do anything criminal. And yet Republicans in Congress really, really, really don't want to investigate that because it makes someone on their, t you know, it makes them look, I don't know, it just looks bad, I guess. And so there's something that's really depressing about that, that at least, and it's interesting to think of if you go back to Watergate, what had happened if not a single Republican in Congress had, I mean, you'll get to this in the podcast, but the answer is that nothing would have happened, right? The investigations required Congress to say, we take the office of the presidency more seriously than we take our loyalty to our party. No. Yeah. Um, and also this idea that, you know, not anyone can or should be president. That, you know, we have 300 million people to pick from. We can afford to go with the best and the brightest. And that if you're not the best and the brightest, you should not be president. You know, anyway. Exactly. Um, anything else or did that, that more or less cover it? I think that's okay. it. Okay. Well, if you have any future insights, you know, after you listen to it, you can tell us on a future episode. Yeah. So just to be clear, that slow burn thing, that was the, a JP report back. Yeah. Um, and so Dylan's report back is on the media list. Yeah. yeah. And Joanna is down to five and a half JP, but we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Mm -hmm. um, is uh, the podcast media list. Joanna, can you remind our listeners what this is? Um, so over the years, we have like developed in various places various lists of media that we would like to consume we dylan has made many lists of media because <laughs> he's a big old nerd um and so i was like what would be cool is now that i'm going to be in sacramento you should put it you should combine these various lists into one list of media that we can consume together to do specifically for the media club section of the podcast yeah very cool yeah. so it's relevant to our listeners it's relevant to us everyone's excited it's a jp assignment what you got and specifically i clarify with this after the podcast this is in-person thing so like there are some games like as an example we just both bought a game called astroneer that we probably like will still play but it'll be online and it won't be different than it would have been if you know joanna was in new york right right so those things are not as opposed on to list. astro far which would be very different <laughs> well i couldn't think of You're the right. opposite of astro off the top of my head i guess i don't that there's not a ash what's the opposite <laughs> of ass head headstro badge badstro near um i do this I'm, for the faces on a second. that dylan I need makes to go. but you can't see the faces dylan makes oh, i need wait, to I... go and get a um i was oh i remember what i was asking you earlier i kept asking joanna a question she kept interact interrupting to call me dumb so i couldn't finish my question dumb. and the and the question dumb. i was kept asking joanna and You're then a after dummy. Times, dumb. <laughs> afterwards she was like okay what were you asking me i couldn't even remember because she interrupted me dumb. so much what i was asking you was do you know the song i need a new drug no Huey Lewis in the news, parodied nope. by Weird Al as uh, I want Weird a new drug. Al. I want a new drug. Parodied by Weird Al as I want a new duck. Okay. Anyway, so I was saying I'm gonna record a cover version I called I Want a New DMT. I, we say? I want to try DMT. D 
DMT? It's a drug. Oh. Wait, seriously? I would like to, seriously. Wait, I have to look the Oh my god. Uh Oh, no. you're so predictable. Okay, well, let's uh, uh you can decide if we edit that out of the podcast or not. Um <laughs> I was going to say that um I want to record a cover version called I want a new friend. Well, I want to record a cover version called I want a less dumb friend. Boo. Have well, I mentioned you're Joanna, a dummy, if, dummy, if you, dumb, dumb, if, dumb, dummy, dumb. You know, some people, you don't have to be best friends with yourself. You can merely be an acquaintance. This is confusing. Yeah, it's, for people who are dumb, it's a little hard to track. No, it, it's confusing <laughs> because I've been very clear this whole time about you being dumb. I didn't say anything about. But you were just saying you, you want it less dumb friend. Oh, I did say that. I was about to be like, I didn't say anything about being friends, but I think I did actually. It's okay. You know, she's Sorry. slow, but she gets there eventually. <sighs> Shut up. Let's I want a new duck. I'm out I think. One that won't make a mess of my house. I'll build a nest in the bathroom sink. I want a new duck. One that won't steal a beer. One that won't stick his bill in my mail. One that knows the duck stops here. Okay, so shared media list. So I, I put I sorted this into um by media type. Uh and this is not exhaustive. Not this by is author's last name. Up. Shut up. So first I put audio. Uh this was inspired by the fact that uh, a few years ago Joanna and I both went through the uh NPR productions of Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back, which are lovely radio dramas. Lovely. Um so and then I took some notes basically saying why this might be good for Media Club. So the first one is don't crush that dwarf. Hand me the pliers. Do you know what that is, Joanna? Uh, don't crush that dwarf. Hand me the pliers. No. Yes. Okay. It is a best-selling Fire Sign Theater album from 1970, and it's included in the National Recording Registry. Um, the National Recording Registry is sort of like the National Film Registry, where they take all sorts of recordings, um, archive them at the Library of Congress, and then write various essays about why they're important or are interesting. Uh, and it's a really cool. cool thing to look through. That, that sounds could be amazing. A whole yeah, that could be a whole source of stuff where we like listen to songs or radio shows or whatever. But one of the things in there was this album by Firestone Theater. Um, Firestone Theater was a countercultural comedy group um, who did primarily comedy albums, right, as opposed to like stand-up mm -hmm. um, or occasionally radio shows. Um, so I thought it would be a cool thing to listen to that and discuss what countercultural comedy looked like before the internet. So like imagine Firestone Theater is like a producer of a lot of memes, right? This was very popular in college campuses. Yeah. Um, uh, my dad was a friend, and uh, you may recall me telling you that um, in fifth grade, uh, I was best friends with the son of someone named David Osman, who was in Firesign Theater. And it's the one time my father's ever been, like, a little starstruck, you know, with somebody who was like, oh, my God, this guy was only, you know, he's like, he's like my son's friend's dad. So I think that'd be a fun thing to listen to. And then we could also talk about comedy some, right, because you have very particular ideas of, of comedy. Joanna's looking at her hands, so I, I, I think... She, I don't know what that means. I'm listening. Oh, you're listening. Okay. Sorry, she's listening very intently. She's so focused on my voice that she's looking at her hands rather than her phone. 
So it, it tells you she's really listening. Um, another thing I had, this one's a little bit of a throwaway. It was Game Over. I had this from an earlier list. This was a radio drama authored by Emily Short about yeah. working in independent games. Um, we can't listen to it. It's on the BBC. Uh, the BBC doesn't let you listen to things overseas, and then they stick it in their archive, and there's no way to even pay for it because it was a radio program and they're butts. It's so but. all we can do is either wait for it to become available or be like, Psst, Emily, can you like slip us a pirate copy, please? Mm-hmm. Um Psst, I'm not Emily, even sure she has I know one. you're listening to us right now. Yeah, and she is too uh, cool for this podcast, but she's she is a cool lovely human, human. But she's not cool to be my friend on Facebook. That's so cool. You're so cool. It's really cool. I am really cool. I have a lot of cool pe- people who record me, her friends on Facebook or Twitter. Anyway, so that was audio. Um, for film, I put John Sales films, right? We're doing a little John Sales mini marathon. Uh, Lone Star in particular, I would, I think would be really cool to discuss for movie, for Media Club. It's a super discussable film. But there may be others along the way. You know, we probably have about five films to go before we get to Lone Star. And that would be something we could do. I also put Space Lions. Space Lions is the documentary by the Shut Up and Sit Down people that's about the making of Twilight Imperium 4th Edition. And it's a sort of rare document uh, documentary, I think the first of its kind, to sort of go behind the scenes of production for a major board game, particularly like a heavy board cool. game sequel, and talking about what the process is and how do you even do that. Um, and how do you make sort of the sequel to this really big game with like a cult following? Um, yeah. so that was what I had for film and television. Cool. Um, oh, and Star Trek, obviously. Um, oh no, that's just film. Okay, sorry. I had television is a different area. Ignore me. Just film. Um, so then I had tabletop games. So one of these I had is a game called The Seventh Continent. Have you heard of that? Uh, no. So the Seventh Continent, I- you said. The Seventh Continent. No, I haven't. So heard as of it. Jo- as Joanna knows, I I enjoy campaign games. That is games that you know connect over sessions. Some on uh, also um some is called legacy games because they're games where you make permanent changes to the game that kind of last through and even between sessions. Um, and I I'm playing through Gloomhaven with some people right now. I play Imperial Assault when I get the chance. Um, and. Uh, I have this other one in the mail, and I got it because I really want to play it. Everyone loves it. It's sort of inspired by, like, pulp adventure fiction uh, of, like, late uh, 1800s, but has a really interesting sort of narrative-oriented adventure game setup where you try—there's different curses. Every time you play the game, there's, like, a curse that's over the island, and you have to—it's almost—the game's almost like an elaborate set-piece puzzle where you have to work together to solve the curse. But even if you die, like, you make changes to the world state that um, are present when you next try to do it. Um, and it's ostensibly for one, one to four people, but I recently looked it up, and it's recommended either as a solitaire game, it's considered one of the all-time best solitaire games, or as a two-player game. So if we wanted to have our own little campaign game that was separate from, like, my gaming group, this is something we could do um, and play together. It also has a nifty feature where most of these campaign games have, like, enormously terrible setup times and breakdown times, mm-hmm. where this one's built in such a way that you can basically save the game state and put it away in, like, five minutes and bring it back out in five minutes. So it doesn't have that. Yeah. Um, so basically what we would do is we do the, there's like seven curses. I ordered it with an expansion and tons of like extra stuff. So we just do like the first one and see if we liked it, you know? Yeah. Does that sound like something you'd be interested in? Yeah, totally. Um, another one was that I still have my little set of Android Netrunner cards, which oh. and I played once or twice. Um, and I think it'd be interesting to play a few games of that, talk about CCGs. Okay, Joanna's making faces. I will play it, but the no. memory of it is so overwhelming. Yeah, it, but, that's, but that's interesting. It's a brilliant design. I think it's interesting to poke and design. And it died. You know it died recently, right? Yeah. 
it, through like in really tragic circumstances the basically wizards who had the license as far as anyone can tell just pulled it all of a sudden and so they literally like launched a new base set and never and getting new players in the game and they were like jk we're shutting it all down um but i think that would also be interesting to talk about the experience of playing a dead game like on the podcast like what it means to play a game that's that was designed to be living and so it's dead now but like the cards are all still there and you can still play it so like what does that mean yeah um another thing i had in here is just chess We've played chess before. Um, you used to talk about playing chess with yourself as sort of spatial practice for the world and things like that. And I think it might be fun just to play a couple yeah, games I think of chess. So too. Talk about that. And now then we you can also have talk a about, set, right? Because I gave I have mine a set of chess. Walter. Yes. Um, but it'd be also be interesting to talk about chess as a deeply flawed game and discuss like ways in which you can modify chess to make it better. I have a really good article. If we did this for Media Club, I'd send you an article that's called... Um, it's basically about this guy who who helped rebound Street Fighter trying to make a better chess game and talking mm-hmm. about the history of chess and how over time chess is, you know, like most games evolved. And then around like 1900, we basically froze it in stasis and the game can no long, hasn't changed. Um, so it has all these like really deep flaws, but it's helped put on such a pillar that no one's willing to change it. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I put is Edge of the Empire. I have this dream of doing a Star Wars role-playing game, like pen and paper role-playing game. Cool. And if I ever find the time, like, DMing that. So if we, if I did find the time, and that would be, like, late 2019 at the earliest, frankly. Well, uh, but if know, I did yeah, find... but, uh, but, like, one thing that would be cool about a pen and paper RPG is we could even maybe record a segment of the actual game. Yes, this. yeah. Um, and, and Edge of the Empire is a cool one because it's, it, there's a number of these Star Wars role-playing systems that are inter- interlinked, and this one is a system that really focuses on storytelling and de-emphasizes like number crunching which mm-hmm. i like a lot but it, this uh setting also specifically focuses on the sort of sit- people in star wars who live on the fringes of the galaxy the smugglers the explorers the bounty hunters the merchants right and not about jedi and not about you know the rebellion versus the empire right that it's sort of putting aside the two main film narratives and being like what about everybody else and i think that's a really cool sort of setup for a game um Another thing we could do is you could join an Imperial Assault campaign, which we still do. That's a Star Wars uh, table-based game, which we do and I enjoy, and where I'm the the Empire and crush everybody. Another one, I have to still get the manual print out and fix some things, but remember the Omega Virus, which we talked about playing? This is an early co-op game in which a computer, like literal yeah. computer that talks, um, yells like at nothing, you. I'm but nobody can see me now. Yeah. yeah. Um, Anyway, it'd be like a weird 80s throwback thing. We could do that. And the last thing I put was War of the Rings 2nd Edition, which is this big Lord of the Rings-themed game. Um, and we, if we did it for the podcast, we could talk about board games as adaptation. Like, how do you translate literature to a board game and do it well and sort of balance the needs of the game design versus, you know, being faithful to the material? So I think that could be a cool discussion. Yeah, for sure. Um, so on television... I put Cool Ghosts, which is a show on video games from the people who do Shut Up and Sit Down, and all I know is that it's like a very different approach to what 99% of, you know, videos about games are, right? It's not, here's a game review, it's not, you know, here's live streaming, let's play, whatever, right? It's trying to do sort of a holistic examination of video games more thematically episode to episode, so it sounded pretty cool. Fargo Season 3 was an option. We could go through that. We have watched the first two seasons of Fargo, and we could do that, and then we could have a podcast thing where we discussed all of Fargo. We could, could, you know, maybe watch the movie again and be like, let's talk all the Fargo that's out there. 
strengths and weaknesses. Uh, we could do Smiley's people. Do you remember when we watched Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy without Guinness? With who? Oh, the actor. Alec, yes. Alec Guinness. Yes, I remember. You remember him. this? Okay. This like very slow burn, um, British mystery based on the John Le Carre novels. Smiley's people was the second series. Um, so we could do that and maybe talk about those because I really like those. And then the final one is uh, Star Trek Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. Uh, once you are here, we will start going through that at a faster pace. We also talked about watching the original series movies, um, which, leap, which lead into a few things in Next Gen. Um, how many episodes do you think we have to go? Yeah. So we are, we're, we're a bit into season three of Next you Generation. Seven so, seasons, right? Yes, and also seven seasons of Deep Space Nine. So yeah. adding the remaining Next Gen to all of Deep Space Nine, how many episodes do we have remaining? I don't know. Math is hard. 297. We probably should actually just catalog nonfiction by author, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 297 Star Trek episodes. NBD. It's NBD. not like we're not going right. to be living together in like a month and a half. I think we can do it. Oh my god. And then like in a week, Joanna's going to die in a car crash and ruin my life. Wow. You're very upbeat. <laughs> I know. So, and, I, and I also realized as soon as I said that, like, how incredibly self-centered that you're going to die in a car crash and ruin my life. <laughs> well, technically, like, I'll be dead, so it's all so you won't, it Actually, won't be that I big of a deal for you. I think the thing that you're doing incorrectly here is assuming that me moving in with you is going to be definitely the best thing ever. Wait, wait, wait. Who's said anything about you moving in with me? When did this happen? In March on the 31st. Okay. I don't think this came up on the podcast is why I'm saying that. Oh. Guys, guess what? They didn't know that? I think you said you were moving to Sacramento. I, I think, think they knew that. Well, they should have figured have it out. Okay. Uh, she, but she she means temporarily. Not that Joanne is my new forever roommate. <laughs> it's very important that all of you know that he would never live with me as a that's roommate. That's not what I... No, that's not what I'm saying, Joanna. I'm just saying, like, just so we're not misleading people. What's going on here? Basically, Don't Joanna would feel with me. misled. We are not that good of friends. We could never be actual roommates, guys. Oh, my God, Joanna. Just... <laughs> Sorry. I'm just fucking... For the mad. record, I would be... Pr I would probably be willing to be roommates with Joanna. Joanna would probably not be willing to be roommates with me. So, she's loading this. She's She's... She's misleading you. For the record, my entire life is a big dumpster fire right now, and I have no opinions. Okay. That's that's the truth. All right, let's move yeah. on. Okay. Um, that was TV. And then we have video games, which is long. There's lots of video games. Um, so one is, um, did you ever play Super Mario 64, Joanna? Um, ye maybe. The awesome. 3D one, like on Nintendo 64. No, I don't think so. The okay. only old Mario I played when I was a kid is the Super one Mario where he World. jumps into paintings. That's Super Mario 64. That's okay. Then yes, I played That's... that one. <laughs> that one I have played. Okay. So. Oh, you mean because it's not a side scroller? No, it's 3D. Right. That's yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Um. There's also a game called. So there's a game called A Hat in Time that came out a couple years ago. It's sort of a 3D 
exploration collection platformer sort of in style of Super Mario 64 and Banjo-Kazooie, which we've never really seen on PC. And it uses the art style from a game called The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker, which is this beautiful art style. It has a local split-screen co-op mode, so we could play a game like that just together. Um, I'm not aware of any other game like this, so I don't know if you would enjoy that or not, but I put that on the list as like a possibility. Yeah. Another one is The Cave, which is a puzzle platner platformer designed by Ron Gilbert of Monkey Island fame and Double Fine. Uh, and it really seems best as a co-op game, so we can yeah. play that. Cool. Another idea I had was City Skylines, which you talked about that you liked despite having played it for like 30 minutes or something. Yeah, I really liked the first uh, five minutes of that game. Yeah. Um, so we could just build a city together, right? We could sit at the same computer and craft Joanna Dillonopolis mm -hmm. and talk about that on the podcast. Yeah. Um, another one is Dear Esther Landmark Edition. So this is basically just Dear Esther made for, you know, the remake of Dear Esther, because there's already the original, the remake. And what this adds is a director's commentary. So I think it might be back interesting to go back, play that again, do the director's commentary, and then talk about its historical import uh, 11 years later, which is where we are since the original release. Yeah, wow. And all the games, and all the games it's inspired and whatever. Yeah, for sure. I, I, like to, I like to pat my head a little bit because when I chose to put Dear Esther in um, my book, is one of the few games I thought was like narratively important enough to get its own chapter in my book. It didn't really have a legacy yet, so it was a pretty weird inclusion choice, and I've been super validated since then. Yeah. It's become the basis for like an entire genre. Um, so then I said specifically we could compare it to Tacoma, What Remains of Edith Finch, Firewatch, etc., which we'd get to. Um, another thing I wrote down, I'm not sure this is actually a good idea, but I thought it would be fun to share, is Deus Ex, which, as you know, is like my all-time favorite game. So I could give you the experts walking tour of Deus Ex, and you could just watch me play it, and I could be like, blah, 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 here's everything. Sure. And just have this like, personal let's play. Um, I put down Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, which we talked about before, and I've mentioned specifically that it's basically like it's the closest I've played to a radio play in a game, though I hear the game Oxenfree is also very much like that. And since we sort of enjoy audio dramas, I think that would be an interesting thing. Um, in the center of vote, um, we talked about the game Firewatch earlier, which is a game that you started playing and you really liked the, the narrative, but you just could not navigate the environment. Like, you really don't enjoy things that, that make you... Um, What's the orient orienteering, you know, where you're set in the wilderness, you have to figure out which way is what by using a compass. Those games are just not. Yeah. Um, Joanna can't do it in real life, and she can't do it in a video game either. Yeah, uh, also Salt was that way. Yeah, that's right. Oh, my God. Salt. No, Joanna. No, no, North. No, the other way. The other oh North. The other yeah. North. <laughs> yeah. Stop running. Uh, yeah. Um, so I thought it'd be cool if, I mean, we could literally just play that game i could just drive and navigate and then you could you yep. know we could experience the story together um there's a game called humans fall flat which is a goofy physics driven puzzle platformer with lots of comic potential i wrote in my notes aka joanna simulator so you play these like really clumsy dudes who are just like knocking into things and everything um and you can actually play it co-op and co-op actually makes the game easier which i think is a cool feature um there is the icebound concordance do you remember what this is? No. Nope. This was a book game hybrid I kickstarted years ago. So it's a physical, like, full-color book that's just full of information with no context. And there's a, a game that you either run on PC with a webcam or on a smartphone that you use to, like, scan the book and create narrative from, like, finding things in the book and scanning it into the app. Cool. Um, yeah, so I think I've never gotten around to playing it, but that I think it's awesome. a super cool concept. And, yeah, and I have uh, 
something we might add to this list later is I have a copy of a couple of games called Dialect and Sign by mm-hmm. Thorny Games. They might be interesting media. And those are story games, right? Yeah, and well, and they require they'll require more than just us, probably. Maybe not yeah. Sign, but definitely Dialect will. Yeah. Uh, and I put Kentucky Route Zero. We've already talked about that on the, on the podcast. K-R-Z, really do it. K-R-Z. Yeah. But uh, again, the fifth episode should be out um, soon. And, and really what's going to happen if we do a joint play- playthrough is you your playthrough is sort of abandoned. You don't remember what happened. So if you start it again, you just start from the beginning. Right? I remember like what I named my dog and the exactly. very opening scene. What, what did you name your dog? Blue. Mine's Homer. Um, later, after I played Kentucky Route Zero for the first time, a family friend's got a dog and named him Homer. So, weirdly. Um, we could... So, but what I would probably do is I would finish my playthrough because I have all those choices, uh, see the game to its end, and then we'd both start fresh. And so you'd be seeing at least part of it with fresh eyes, and I'd be seeing it more, you know, with seasoned eyes, I guess. Um, another thing I wrote is Kirby's Dream Course. So remember how I have this Super Nintendo Mini I showed you last time you were here? And that has a unusual uh competitive kirby based mini golf game for the super <laughs> nintendo That's ridiculous. which i thought would be a fun thing yeah. for us to play uh another one i put on here this is actually a playstation game i put legend of mana i wrote one of my all-time favorite games for many reasons but a chief one is that it nails bittersweet melancholy in a way that no other video game i've played has yeah. it features an interesting local co-op where you can be two heroes or and this is the way the game would play if you're single player you're there's one main character and over the course of the game, they join up with all these different side characters, but only for short periods of time, yep. like for that character's personal quest. And then the second player can always play the side character. Um, so that'd be a, a thing we could do co-op. I put um, this is sort of a, a secondary one: Lego Marvel Superheroes or Lego Lord of the Rings. You know the te- the Traveler's Tales Lego games. Um, Monaco, what's yours is mine, which is a sort of comic heist simulator. I said I thought there'd be a lot of comic hijinks and us trying and failing heists in that. I put overcooked. You know you want to. That's what I wrote. You know you want to. Not a chance. I'll watch somebody overcooked. else. That game was horrifying. Uh, but like brilliant, right? I don't know. Can okay, tell us what overcooked is and why you're making a face. Overcooked is like where you and some other people have to cook things in the kitchen together. I feel like it's not that exciting because it's like such a known real life thing, right? Like that it's just the digital translation of an actually stressful thing. I don't get it. Well, part of it is that it becomes increasingly absurd and complicated. Like it's a game about communication and about like basically failing and trying to like literally put out kitchen fires together while you yell at each other because you weren't doing the thing that you told other people to do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See. Yeah. Okay. It's it's very uh, fun and it's lots of lots of fun and everybody should play it because it's so. Stop fun. it, Joanna. What's wrong with you? You do- ah whatever. Joanna's a philistine. Sometimes she doesn't understand things that involve other people. <laughs> okay, Dylan. Okay, Dylan. Um. Sorry, I get really steamed when I talk about Overcooked. Oh, shut it. <laughs> Uh, whereas Joanna, she's kind of burnt out on that game. Yeah, I'm feeling like I should go get baked. Well, you, you saw what I wrote on Facebook about my neighbors, right? Yeah, I did. Oh my god. Oh my I, god. I, a Facebook update is that 
earlier today there was someone that, who was just like banging on the door across the way and i was like a little concerned um because we've had some break into the building lately so eventually i poked my head out and what was happening is that um i think the the neighbors across the way were getting pot delivery and but um i believe they when i went out to the hallway like the hallway smelled of pot like really strongly in a way that it would only do so if they were like smoking a lot in there so i think they were so busy smoking so much pot that they could not answer the door to get their pot delivery of their next batch and so it was just like in a baggie that looked like it was from taco bell sitting on their doorstep i want a taco yes is there anything else on your list Yes. Oh, we're not done. This is a big list. Okay, keep you're going. Gonna because have, I think have, people like... probably want to do other things with their lives today, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they can fast forward. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, put, yeah. I put Secret of Mana. Um, it's just also in the Super Nintendo Mini. It's one of the earliest co-op games. It's particularly notable since pretty much all the co-op games were pure action, like shooters or gauntlet. While this is a bit more of a lightweight RPG, uh, may or may not be your speed, but definitely worth trying. Um, I put Spycraft, the great game. That was the early game that's about, like, you know, using computer interfaces to spy on people, and whatever. Yep. And I said, you could drive, I'd watch. And I wrote as a note, I miss playing Dreamfall with you, so I am all about co-playing adventure games. Aww. Um, uh, I wrote Stickballed, a dodgeball adventure. I said, this incredibly charming local co-op dodgeball campaign with a proper story and a campaign and everything. I played some single player and really enjoyed it, but it would definitely be a better co-op. So, uh, and the final game was Toonstruck. Uh, and I said we could play this together and you could introduce me to this graphic adventure that I missed and we could sort of talk about you know the nostalgia you have for it versus me playing it for the first time in 2019 and seeing what I thought of it cool and that's it that's the whole list <gasps> woohoo so good list uh uh it's a good list um yeah and I'm sorry if that was boring for people well too bad you picked the wrong podcast to listen to so what's next, Joanna? Um, what's next? Oh, uh, Dylan assigns JP, and then Joanna assigns something that's definitely less than five and a half JP. Cool. Um, so what I'm assigning to you is sort of is actually sort of inspired by what you assigned to me. What I just talked about. I want to assign you to come up with a list of of physical places to visit in the Sacramento area with me. A list so of these places galleries. to visit in the Sacto area. Good news, I already have one. Does that mean I can't okay. um, do it for a JP assignment, though? But I do have one. Hold a second. That's fine. No, you can tell again. Okay. So I said these could be galleries, stores, restaurants. They could be places in nature. Anything as long as it's a physical space that can be visited. Cool. Uh, and, and specifically with both of us. So if there's something where you say, I want to do that by myself or I want to do that with – Somebody else, not on the list, right? Just things that you would yeah, want to do with us. For sure. Um, and that's it. And that'll probably be, I don't know how long that'll take you to come up with that, but, you know, 2JP, 3JP, something like that. All right. And so now I'm assigning JP. Um, yep. So in no more than two hours, um, because, you know, 2JP. So, so spend yep. no more than two hours doing this. Um, uh, put together a playlist of exercise music. Uh-oh. It doesn't have Wait. to be formally exercise music, just music that you would exercise to. Oh, is, is this is this you want to see, like, what's the opposite of my melancholic playlist? Yes. Also, I need an exercise playlist. Okay. And I but think that jo- Dylan's would be funny. But Joanna would be funny? 
Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> I have a feeling it's going to be good. Okay. Um, but Joanna, you don't exercise. Right. That's that's the challenge. Are you going to start exercising? Well, I have this machine that I'm bringing with me. So it's going to be at your place. Not a big machine, but a machine. and Like an under... Whatever. There's a thing that I can exercise on that I'm bringing. And so I... I'm super confused. Okay. It's like a, one of those under the desk foot pedally things i see anyways and so anil's been giving me a bunch of shit about how i'm never going to use it so i've been thinking about using it and that's what okay. led to this assignment wait wait so if i understand this correctly if i give you a bunch of shit about not doing something that will motivate you to do that thing it'll motivate me to come up with a random tangents related to that thing Mm. Mm. my gears are turning okay that i will do that how long do you want the playlist to be mm, 45 minutes ish okay 45 minutes ish because obviously Sounds you can't good. be exact yes you watch me we also um we don't have media club this month because uh we are dumb and forgot to do a media club thing we also just skipped my song break uh oh yeah sorry okay so now it's time for joanna's song break all right um do i say what the name of the song is now do yes. i say okay the name of the song is curse me good and the name of the band is the heavy and now we will pause and listen to the song
So I actually like that. Um, it's definitely a little on the poppy side for my taste, and I thought sometimes I want to say it, like tell the string section to calm down a little bit. Uh, but but yeah, that's good. That's a good good hook, good melody. Yay! Yeah. Um, I will say that I was watching the that was curse me good by the curse heavy. me good by the heavy. Uh, Joanna sent me a YouTube link, so I was watching the music video. I the music video I quickly decided that the music video was terrible for two reasons. One, I think the worst. I think the worst subgenre of music video is the subgenre of music video, which is the artist performing to a sold-out show because they're so amazing and great, you know, which I'm just like, stop. Like, you don't need to puff yourself up like that, right? Um, and then, yeah, and then a lot of it's just, like, the main guy walking around singing a bunch of people, and the rest of the band in sunglasses following him around looking cool for some reason. Anyway, so then I switched over to Skype where Joanna was singing along to the music, and that was a much better music video that she quickly stopped. I'm so good at being a music video as long as I don't actually have to yeah. sing. I was mouthing along. Well, yeah, but then as soon as she realized I was watching her, she stopped and looked down. Uh, sure. But, um, and that's why I usually don't tell Joanna when I'm watching her. Hey, you're not creepy <laughs> at all. You're not creepy. So we were dumb and we didn't do a media club. So there's no media club. Uh, so what are we doing for the next media club, Joanna? For the next media club, we're doing jazz astronauts. Would you say that you're jazzed to be doing that? I'm so jazzed. Um, jazz astronauts is a mod. Well, it's basically a game made inside Gary's mod, uh, which is a very early tool set that allows people to make games with the Source engine used in Half Life Two. Uh, and using the assets from Half-Life 2 and Counter-Strike Source and Team Fortress 2 and other games by Valve. Um, this is a weird meta mod in which you go into randomly levels, randomly pulled off the internet that people have made uh, over time, and then go and steal just objects from the levels. Um, like, like loot the levels of their models, uh, and then it's tied into some sort of overarching story that involves cats and trains and something. And I... I I don't know almost nothing about it like on purpose because it just it comes um, recommended by someone whose tastes I I value highly and I think will be fun. It's also the kind of game that, as the developers recently pointed out, is so 
stapled together from so many different parts that it will almost certainly stop working sometime in the next few years. So we want to play it now while mm-hmm. we can. So we will yep. play that uh, co-op starting uh, this Thursday and for a few more sessions and let you know next month what we think of it. Correct. Next up is the joke of the month. Joke of the month, right. The joke of the month is why does Dr. Pepper come in a bottle? Dr. Pepper usually comes in a can. Why does Dr. Pepper come in a can? Um, To hold the liquid in, because if it wasn't in there, it would spill out. Because his wife died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's a good one. Oh, I only just got it. I was laughing before I got it. I thought it was funnier because it was a non sequitur, but okay, fine. I actually no. like I actually like the real version less than this the random book. Oh, the random like the random answer that's like because yeah. I could be like why did Dr Pepper come in why does Dr Pepper come in yeah. a can yeah uh, because his child has aged yeah, exactly <laughs> <laughs> okay just okay so so let me see let's do it again let's do it again. Why does Dr. Pepper come in a can? I don't know, Joanna. Why? <laughs> because he voted for Trump. <laughs> Why does Dr. Pepper come in a can? Why? Uh, because his favorite sport is soccer. Okay, I'll stop now. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I'm. It's a fun it is, game. No, I do. I do. I like this totally game. totally unrelated to the So even thing. though it's Joanna's joke month i'm going to find a picture so at my workplace we have a whiteboard the p there's a whiteboard question every week and people can go and write things on it so today or not today this week the question was can you see that in the camera if i hold my phone up here yeah what does it say what makes you smile smile? so uh on that there was different things and and so someone wrote laughing babies and then a bit later, they someone writ, uh, went and wrote sleeping babies under that. And then I realized that there yeah. was only room for one more thing under that line. So what does it say, Joanna? Dead babies. I wrote dead babies on the whiteboard at work. I then nice. erased it that afternoon before my boss got in because I thought she might get mad. Well, maybe if you'd said aborted babies, that would have been fine. I don't think it would have been no i think i would have gotten in trouble but it's a totally valid choice <laughs> god damn it <laughs> Boom. okay right. yeah that would have been um that would have been a fun co- <laughs> conversation in her office but it would have been yeah, funny, it would, funny no i was laughing okay. i was laughing about dead babies for so long i just loved it yeah. it, 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 it Oh, right. What's next? What's next? Um, what's next is Dylan's Game Corner. Uh, Do it. So originally, I was going to say a little bit about... Um, so I write this thing every year. I think I may have mentioned in previous episodes where I write... Um, I, well, I used to write a sentence about every game I played in a year. Uh, yeah. Then last week, I felt that was too... Last week, sorry. Last year, I felt that was too constrained. So I started writing like a few sentences, like short short notes. Yeah. Uh, 
And then this year, I just went sort of crazy, and I started out doing that, but very quickly I found myself writing multiple paragraphs about a game, and I played about, like, 70 to 80 games in 2018. And so it right. went crazy, and it ended up taking me way too long, and I spent close to 14,000 words uh, writing it. And so that's up now, and you can – I'll put a link in the podcast description, but you can go to um, augmented-vision.net and read it. And so originally I was going to just – round up some of the best games of 2018, the ones I most enjoyed. Again, specifically when I say games of 2018, I mean games I played this year, not necessarily games that came out this year. Uh, but then I realized that, that there are probably like, I probably have 15 favorites, and it would take, we'd be here all day if I talked about each of them. Specifically since I just gave that very long list, which is 100% your fault because you made that assignment. Uh, so I instead decided that I would just talk about what was probably my favorite game from last year, which is Subnautica. So I'm going to read you what I wrote about Subnautica. Subnautica is my game of the year, and as such, I could use up quite a lot of podcast space talking about it. But I'll keep the pitch simple. It is the first game to embrace the potential of survival games and make a fully formed single-player experience that is compelling from beginning to end. Survival mm -hmm. games were the nichest of niche genres. That is a proper pronunciation, thank you. Until popularized by Daisy and Minecraft, and afterwards they proliferated. Survival games have obvious strengths. Permadeath and limited resources creates constant tension and interest, and it's easy to make a compulsively playable game by stacking tons of resource acquisition, crafting, resource depletion loops on top of one another. Throw in a procedurally generated world that you don't actually need to hand design and you have a game. To be clear, a lot of these survival games are a good time, but A, they're pretty much all the same game, and B, most of the engagement is with the glorified Skinner box. Minecraft transcended the grind because of its creative aspects and novelty, but most survival games are only fun until you grok the system. Afterwards, you're grinding for grinding's sake. And because there's no real narrative or general reason for doing what you're doing, there's nothing to keep you around once the core loop gets dull. Subnautica has a few brilliant ideas to change the formula. First, the world is handcrafted, not procedurally generated. The developers decided that crafting a really high-quality first playthrough was more important than the theoretical, but not actual, infinite replayability offered by procedural generation. Second, the setting, which is an entirely, entirely water-covered world, is not just window dressing. There's an immediate sense of discombobulation in being a human bereft of land, and as such there's a constant push and pull between the joys of exploring an alien world and the vulnerability of being a fragile, guiltless creature in the depths. Uh, to be clear, for some background, Subnautica opens that you're a, a crew member on a spacefaring vessel, that something happens to it that causes it to crash on this uh, uncharted alien world. Uh, and, it, and you basically are in an escape pod that lands in the ocean, so you're floating and you have your little escape pod, but you, you, know, you have a couple of ration bars and a couple of bottles of fresh water, and that's it. So you need to figure out how to get food, water, electricity, figure out what happened to your ship, etc. I continue, this is a game about managing terror, but it's not a horror game. With a single glorious exception, this game doesn't do jump scares, and that terror is always manageable. Early portions of the game are almost entirely without serious thre threats, but the player doesn't know that. So it's all about gathering new information, exploring areas until you understand them and feel comfortable with them. Ultimately, this comfort gives way to boredom, and that boredom and the promise of new sights pushes you to go to scary new places. Third, the developers make an intentional, brave decision to have no lethal weapons in the game. No guns. This not only avoids the trap of subpar survival game combat, but changes your entire relationship with the world. 
You are not conquering it as you do in so many open world games. You are learning to live with it, navigate it, and respect it. If there is a nasty creature that can kill you, you don't pick a fight, you avoid it. There are enough personal defense systems and strategies that it doesn't become some hellish underwater stealth game, but they're focused on distraction and protection. Fourth, the game is focused in a way few survival games are. There isn't an open-ended quest to craft all the things. You have intertwined personal missions to escape the alien planet and to solve its mysteries that drive you to specific places in the world. There is a satisfying narrative and an actual ending, but the game never pushes you towards these and is happy to let you explore and build. But the developers make sure to avoid them these features take over the game. There is an easy to use and satisfying base building game, for instance, but you can't make bases of infinite variety and creativity because this is not a construction game, it's a directed exploration game. Subnautica's understanding of its core strengths and its dedication to pursue those to the highest caliber is what makes it by far the best survival game I've ever played in my favorite game of 2018. And without getting into spoilers, it has my all-time favorite video game vehicle in it. Acquiring that vehicle brought a feeling of accomplishment that took a long time to dissipate. That's it. It also is really pretty and it sounds That's great. Lovely. Yeah, Subnautica is a lovely game. And now we're on to our final segment, Joanna's Book Nook. Yes, and for my book nook today, I am talking about a book called Figuring by Maria Popova. Figuring, it just came out um, this month uh, from Penguin Random House. And it is by the woman who does the blog Brain Pickings, which many of you may know. Nope. Um, uh, Brain Pickings is, uh, it's like a, it's a sort of a combination of wellness blog with intellectual culture. So it looks at um, the different ways. Let me find their little about section and I'll just read it to you because it's pretty cool. It, it, okay. Uh, it is, uh, my name is Maria Popova, not mine. This is the author speaking. I am a reader and writer and I write about what I read here on Brain Pickings, my one woman labor, labor of love. It is an inquiry into what it means to live a decent, substantive, rewarding life and a record of my own becoming as a person, intellectually, creatively, spiritually, drawn from my expended marginalia on the search for meaning across literature, science, art, philosophy, and the various other tentacles of human thought and feeling. Do you, do you like tentacles so it's very, of human feeling? I do. It's a very popular um, blog, um, but she recently came out with a book called Figuring. Um, and the little summary there is figuring explores the complexities of love and the human search for truth and meaning through the interconnected lives of several historical figures across four centuries, beginning with the astronomer Johann mm -hmm. Kepler, who discovers the laws of planetary motion and ending with the marine biologist and author Rachel Carson, who catalyzed the environmental movements. Silence. Uh, stretching between these figures is a cast of artists, writers, and scientists. Now, one thing about this, and I didn't know it when I picked it up, is that this book mostly features women who identify as queer. Hmm. Um, and that struck me as an interesting decision because it's clearly, it, it clearly espouses a notion of representation um, that I think is sort of antithetical to uh, the stated mission of the blog, right? Which is- So um, you're saying that you think that's not coincidental? Uh, no, I think it is, I think it's a strange decision to make. And it's a strange thing to highlight. But nonetheless, it's a book I would recommend a lot on the basis of the fact that this what uh, this author is very good at choosing very relevant questions and answering them in interesting and provocative ways using 
you know, sources that respected sources. And by interesting questions, what I really mean, I don't mean like, you know, intellectually interesting. I mean like relevant to li- to mm. living, right? So she's really good at connecting the like sort of um you know, big thought stuff with the mundane. Um and so th- so I picked it up. I really liked it a lot. Um in my opinion, she's a little bit wordy and there is this like weird tendency not in the blog so much but in this book um there is the i think she falls into the trap sometimes of being um motivated by political rhetoric you mean that she she generally speaking no i mean like for example what i just read about mostly women mostly queer like that you would only really go out of your way to highlight that in a book summary if you thought it would you know if you thought it was like a point of interest right Whereas if what you're talking about so you're saying, is... So in other words, she's saying to, to an audience, you know, there's the general theme of this book. You might not want to read it for that theme, but I think you might want to read it because of, because of who's in it. Yeah. Also because this book purports to be about the human experience, and it's mostly queer women. Which, not that they're not human, but they're certainly not the only humans. So to make that the, to make that the like, you know... Does she, does she argue to, that... that something about the queer experience is more revealing of humanity than if if you were to look at people who were not queer no you know that's that's she, she doesn't she doesn't more say rhetorical that. than anything else. gotcha yeah right so it makes it more rhetorical okay. than anything else to me it's just sort of like yeah. a signal right like uh we'll get how yeah. liberal i am and that's that's the thing that sort of gives me pause but on but the, the whole the effort and the thought is cool. very strong yeah so give it a read she's not the only person i know who's a little bit wordy all right. Actually, you're not wordy enough sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Well, uh, we thought this podcast was going to go super long, but it turns out it went pretty much the exact same length our podcasts always do, except for the last super short one. We're actually a little Whoops. bit shorter than normal, which is good. Which is good. Uh, All right. Well, this is Joanna um, signing out for episode six of... A possibility of and Oppenheim's. Which I will figure out the title for as I listen to it and editing as I usually do. Um, and thank you. Yeah, thank you for joining us. As always, if you have any thoughts, you can write us at a possibility of opinions at gmail.com. Uh, or, you know, call us on the phone because you probably know us if you listen to the podcast. If you absolutely have to. Okay. We'll be here. Uh, All right. See you next time. Bye. Bye.